Our guest today is Jordan Plater, the head of sales for emerging markets at Gong. I've known Jordan for years since our time together at Qualtrics, where he became a sales leader closing some of the biggest deals in company history. Jordan joined Qualtrics in 2009, making just $10 an hour out of college. But in less than a decade, he was spearheading new markets and landing transformative deals with Fortune 500s. When we recorded this episode, Jordan was serving as head of sales at Taxbit, a crypto tax and accounting company that Jordan helped to raise hundreds of millions in funding. And in his new role at Gong, he's helping the company expand into new enterprise markets. In this episode, Jordan recounts the play-by-play of how he closed what was the biggest deal in Qualtrics company history, displacing a decade-long incumbent. There's a lot to learn from Jordan about how he relentlessly hustles, networks, and digs into every nook and cranny of a company. And I know you'll be inspired by Jordan's story about what it takes to pull off a career-defining enterprise deal, especially as the art of building in-person relationships has atrophied. Without further ado, our episode with Jordan Plater. Jordan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, of course. And uh, and I think you were definitely one of the first people I thought to have on here for a lot of reasons. You know, we worked together for a long time there at Qualtrics. And in a funny way, the whole theme of what we're doing here, you were the person that helped me, the deal that kind of put me on the map, actually, kind of early on in my career there. I think that was a milestone in both of our careers. And so I couldn't wait to have you on. Before we get into that, though, you know, talking about your deal that put you over the map, I think we should talk about that at some point. That was a pretty big milestone, I think, for the company as well. I, I, I think a lot of people don't know that when, you know, when you joined Qualtrics early on, you were one of the first kind of employees to come to Utah, move to Utah and join a tiny little startup. And anyways, we can talk about that another time, but you were kind of a pioneer at Qualtrics in your own right. Um, we can talk about yeah. that another time. Fun and, and so, you know, definitely want to get into one deal that really impacted your career, or I guess a series of deals, and uh, excited to talk about that. Before we get into the details of it, really want to set the scene. Your deal is from 2016, 2017, 2018, when you were an enterprise AE at Qualtrics. And so I'd love if you could provide some background about your journey up to that point, what's happening in your career then, and kind of what's going on in the company around that time. Yeah, good question. You know, Qualtrics started as a land and expand solution. So we really focused, when I joined in 2009, we were actually just focused on academics primarily. It's like, go get as many universities using Qualtrics as possible. And Michael, if you think about it, that's like five to 10K licenses, a department, a college, a, you know, a, a faculty, as they call it in the other parts of the world, all these different um, licenses where you would just hope that the students are using this as much as possible. They go into the corporate world and now they're using Qualtrics because that's what they know. And that's really where we started. And because of that, Qualtrics really tried to go upstream. They tried to go up market from really 2009 onwards as we started getting into the, the enterprise and the commercial space. But I would say 2010 through 2015, we were really focused on a lot of deals were 10K. A lot of deals were 15K, 50K. And the deal sizes started to get bigger and bigger every single year. And so every single year, we saw a new deal that was getting larger. And in 2010, 1516, we launched our customer experience solution. It was an inflection point in the Qualtrics um, journey where we realized that we could really go upstream into the large enterprise. 
And we noticed there were other competitors in this space pricing out huge dollar values, huge license sizes for these customer experience programs. And really, they dominated this space for many, many years leading up to that point. And then all of, it comes, all of a sudden, here comes the new guy that says, hey, yeah, we can enter this customer experience space. Uh, yet we haven't really done it yet. Right at that point, we hadn't really put together a services team. We haven't put together an implementation team. We hadn't, we didn't really know how to implement a large enterprise size license. Um, and so therefore, I think in 2016, we put together the A team. It was like a group of six or seven people. I don't even remember how many. It was like, okay, we need you guys to focus on this deal. Let's make sure they're successful. They're paying us a large amount of money because all of a sudden we had, I don't, it wasn't quite a seven figure deal at that point yet. We hadn't sold a seven figure deal, but it was a significant deal to Qualtrics at that point. Um, and I want to say it was like 500K was that first big enterprise customer experience deal at that, at that time. So here we are in 2016, 2017, actually. And we had just, the, the story behind this is actually really funny. Um, we were at our X4, massive, very big, uh, successful customer and employee experience management conference taking place. This was going on in 2017. And one of the nights we had, I don't, I, Michael, I don't even know if you know this story, but one of the nights was a poker night, a gaming night where all of our attendees, you could go sit at a table and play fake you know, poker or blackjack or craps or whatever it may be. And it just happened to be that the dealer that was working one of these blackjack tables, when it all ended, she went up to an employee and said, excuse me, what is Qualtrics? Remember, we hadn't gone upstream yet. And so uh, the, the employee said, oh, we're a customer experience platform. We're a survey software. And she's like, really? I manage all of the customer insights for American Express at the contact centers. Can we speak? And, and I, I remember her very well. I still keep in touch with her to this day. And um, so she, we, we said, yeah, absolutely, let's speak. And so we met the following week with her and her entire American Express team that managed just the contact center customer experience channel. And, and basically what that is, Michael, it's like you call into the American Express contact center, you have an issue regarding something on your card, you hang up, you get a survey after, you fill out the survey, there's dashboards, there's a whole follow, closed loop follow-up system and everything. So she managed that process. It turns out that she was volunteering that night, helping a friend who owned the company. And it just happened to be that she volunteered for the right company. So that following week, we had a call with her and we were, we met with her entire team. And she said, and, this how, is and how like hungry are you in the account at that point? Are, have you been doing well over the past few months? You know, are you trying to get in there? Yeah. So this was American Express at the time. And it was um, that we had a $70,000 license total total uh, ARR across many different licenses. So $70,000 total. We had just created the enterprise sales team. We had just created, this was the first time that we had created an enterprise sales team. And it was kind of an experiment. It's like, how do we give, go upstream from it? And, and if you know much about Qualtrics, it was primarily an inside sales team driven outside of Provo, driven in Provo, Utah, cold calling, 200, 300 sales reps, just cold calling. That's what it was. No enterprise sales team. For the first time that year, we started hiring and creating this enterprise sales team. And I was one of the first cohorts to go launch this along with many others. Um, and so I was hungry because one, 
we wanted to close big deals. We had just seen the first $500,000 license close, and we were seeing the deal sizes for customer experience that uh, with our competitor that was had been in this space for a while. Now, we were about to face some headwinds going into this, and, and we, we knew it because we were hearing in the market that our competitor was saying like, and we were feeling it too, that one, we didn't know how to implement this. We didn't have the services to do it. We didn't have the expertise, the subject matter expertise to go launch and create surveys and put in the right measurements and the correct dashboards. We had none of that. It was a completely do-it-yourself platform where we would open up and give you a username and password and let you run with everything up, basically up until that six months prior to that, this deal. So we get on a call and I'm, I'm, I'm super hungry. You know, I'm a motivated person. Um, and a little background, I started $10 an hour at, at Qualtrics. And so this, these types of deals where you're getting 25% commissions for everything over your quota can mean a significant amount of money. Of course, I wasn't making $10 an hour at this point. I was seven years into my career, but starting at $10 an hour and getting these bump raises all the way up, you know, I was a, a very motivated person. Um, I'm extremely competitive. I wanted to win and I wanted to prove that this ex this enterprise sales motion could work and will work. And I wanted to be the leader to go prove that out. So um, here we are meeting with this American Express sales team or this American Express team. And we go into an RFP against the, that competitor that, you know, we're in, that's in this space. And it was uh, it was a battle. It was a truly a battle. They had, they had a mature program in place. They had been used running customer experience for years. And in fact, Bain had implemented this NPS program with them years ago. In fact, they were the very first NPS customer of Bain's ever. So, and when they implemented, it wasn't even called NPS. It was called RTF, recommend to friend. And that's what they still call their program today. It's an RTF program, not net promoter school. It's so here we are, we're in this program, you know, one of the oldest NPS programs out there. And we did the, the questions that they were asking actually fit right up our wheelhouse. So we ended up going into an RFP presentation out in New York. And I remember exactly who went with us. It was Brian Stuckey, who's now the, the COO and president of Qualtrics. It was Jared Smith, who was the co-founder. It was myself. And I want to say it was Stephanie Labuddy who was a legacy OG, one of the best at Qualtrics. And we went in there and really just had an amazing presentation and dominated the presentation. And Luke Williams as well. Luke Williams was a subject matter expert they had just hired to help supplement this side of the house that we didn't know anything about. In fact, that was his very first customer-facing meeting ever at Qualtrics. So I remember when the meeting ended, um, there was one individual in the meeting as we were walking out of the meeting, he pulled me aside and said, hey, Jordan, we were, go we're going to choose you. This was after the very first RFP meeting. We're going to choose you. We just need to agree on price and we're good. We're there. And I, re I remember quoting this out at $3 million. Okay. Remember, our largest deal up to this point was less than a million. Okay. So $3 million license going up now to this point. just tipping your tongue. You're, you're just like putting a number out there. Yeah. We didn't know. We just put out $3 million. I have to say one thing. We did find, I found somebody, uh, me and a, a, a buddy of mine, Aaron Robison, who was helping me through this. We found a former employee that worked at American Express, who was now at another large financial institution that worked on this team. We paid him money, a commission subset of our winnings 
So he consulted on this RFP with us. So we knew every single detail about this program. We knew every acronym. We knew every measurement. We knew every leader. We knew what was important on these dashboards. So what we, when we went in there to present, we knew every single thing to like everything. I mean, even though we didn't know anything about this program, we went in there and they're like, they know us better than we know ourselves. And so we knew it like the back of our hand. So I walk out of that meeting and we, I remember going to eat at, um, we were going to eat at Brookfield Place at that little food mall up there right next to America's Express. And we sat down and had sushi. I said, guys, let me just tell you what this individual has told me. He said, we win if we get there on price. So let's not mess up the pricing. It was that first moment that's like, oh my gosh, we're going to take the largest deal size ever, which was 700000 and make it potentially a $3 million deal. 4X our largest deal ever with this one deal. But of course, displacing a decade-long incumbent wouldn't happen without a fight. Jordan describes the back-and-forth battle as the competitor tried to relentlessly undermine Qualtrics' credibility and how he battled to even earn a tense RFP decision call. There was a battle going back and forth. Our competitor was relentless in telling them they had never stood up this type of customer experience program ever, um, which was true. They had to take a leap of faith, but we did have them talk to some of our customers that weren't launching full CX programs, but very large NPS programs on our platform. And I remember there was a call where we... There were, it was a, it was a notification call, RFP notification call. And, and in Qualtrics headquarters, we have a bunch of glass rooms. I told Ryan Smith, who's the you know, CEO at the time. And I said, Ryan, and I pulled in Jared and some others. And I said, this is the call. It's happening today. And this was going to be massive for the steam, the tailwinds of Qualtrics, like such a big deal if we were to win this. And I said, do you want to join this call? And he looked at me in the eye and said, I'm not joining if they tell us no. Are you sure they're going to say yes? And I didn't know. And I just, I was like, Ryan, I don't know for a hundred percent, but I feel like I'm getting good vibes here. I think you should join. And had this, had this gone the other way, we all went into a room, Jared dialed in, Ryan's in the room. They said, they got on the call and said, we're choosing Qualtrics. We've agreed, you know, um, we, we believe in principle, this is the right fees moving forward. It was two and a half million dollars for this initial program. We put on mute and we were yelling and we could see everyone else around the the, uh, the floor just like looking into this room. And we, that was a major, major milestone for myself. Talk about why, but also for Qualtrics. Um, Qualtrics from that point forward ended up being the leading financial CX player. I mean, because of that one deal, we ended up winning City. We ended up winning JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs. We ended up winning, basically dominating the financial vertical primarily because of that one deal and the case studies we could reproduce from them. And I mean, it wasn't hard to go in some of these banks and say, American Express was using this competitor for the last 14 years. They just switched over to us. Oh, you don't believe us? Do you want to speak to them? Because here they are. I can have you. I can align a call. It was pretty much game over at that point. Well, I think a lot of people probably go through a similar experience trying to go more up market. And they're trying to fake it till they make it. To your point, all the challenges against you were true, that you hadn't done something like that before, that they couldn't really do that. How would you say that you were able to effectively get around that? Because I think a lot of other people probably face it, that similar issue. The story continues, and I want to get to that with this deal because there's much more to the story. Um, I think first and foremost is 
every time they asked us questions or they told us um, things that the other competitor was saying to us, it was really important that we developed really deep relationships with the individuals there that they felt trust. They could trust us so that when we told them something, they believed us. That trust building is something that I feel like you could work your butt off in enterprise sales and you can make as many cold calls as you can. But having some type of innate nature to be able to talk to somebody and build trust and build a relationship with someone is very hard to teach. And that, I think, is more important than anything is being able to gain a relationship with someone where if they if you tell them you are the trusted advisor, they actually do believe what you say. So if the score is tied, they're going to go with the guy that they trust, you know, and I think it took a while to get to that point. But it was several many trips out to New York. It was many phone calls. It was many text messages. Um, it was taking that extra step in developing that relationship. So when they'd come to us and say, hey, so-and-so said you don't do this, I would say, David, I understand, but let me actually tell you what's happening. That's false. And let me show you why. Now, did we have engineers hurry scrambling and building stuff for these calls? Yeah, we did, but they actually built product behind it and actually made it. And so I think it's more than just an individual. It's a whole team effort. You have to have product involved. You have to have engineering involved ready to just grind and work harder to launch something for a customer. But as Jordan mentioned earlier, his story didn't end after closing that first major deal. We'll fast forward to hear how he continued expanding the relationship at American Express, making major life changes in the process. He talks about those changes and about the creative strategy he used to get buy-in for an enterprise-wide licensing agreement, or ELA. So shortly after, Ryan then comes to me and says, we want to move to New York City. And I said, I, here again, remember I started in Provo as an inside sales rep as an SDR, 10 bucks an hour sophomore in college. And I said, okay, that's, I, that's great. Let's, uh, I have two kids. I've got, I'm married. Like this isn't just easy to pick it up and move from Utah to New York. Um, he's like, I think you, there's a lot more in American Express. And by the way, I didn't know if there was more. I thought that was it. I thought we had like, capped it out, honestly. And so I said, all right, let's do it. We, I lived right across the street from American Express. And for those that uh, listening that know New York City, which I imagine there's a lot, I lived, that means I was right next to Goldman. That means I was right next to City. I was not far from, you know, other financial institutions in the area. Um, and so I went and moved in, moved into Battery Park City. And I, the first thing I did was I wanted to meet as many people as I possibly could in American Express uh, and understand, are there other customer experience programs, other ways we can continue to expand? So I made a post-it note, a, a wall of post-it notes, a full organizational hierarchy. And I said, I'm going to have lunch or meet with every single one of these people. And that post-it note wall kept expanding because every time I'd go to a lunch with someone, they would say, this is my peer. They're doing this. This is my peer. These are my directors. They're doing this. This is my managers. I think so far too often we create these organizational hierarchies, but it's like top down. Here's the CEOs and here are the CEOs. That doesn't, I started in the middle of the people I knew and just webbed out and kept expanding. And soon enough, I learned that there were four other customer experience programs using different tools at, at American Express. And at that point, it was like, oh my gosh, we could turn this into 4X of what that initial license was. 
And so that's why I was on a mission to go get this large enterprise license agreement and wipe out every single other competitor. And we, one meal, one meeting at a time over the next year and a half, I would meet with every single person. I would, I had my own badge. I was a temp worker then at American Express. I could scan it and walk in. And then the problem with enterprise license agreements is finding one owner who cares about everything across the organization, but's low enough in the organization to talk to you. And we called that person the lowest common decision maker. Instead of lowest common denominator, like in math, it's like, who's low enough in the organization that cares about everything in the organization, but is, is low enough to speak to you? And we found that within this global strategic initiatives group at American Express. And I remember this individual being extremely helpful. And we basically went and worked together um, and met and created many different meetings. There was three different types of users at American Express, three types of personas, roles. You have business users that are going to be the users of Qualtrics. You have sourcing, the people that are going to manage the buying process to initiate that and manage um, negotiations and documentation. Then you have the executives that have to sign off on this. So we went to the business users, Michael, and said, sourcing wants to do an ELA. So let's all get in the same room and figure out how we're going to do an ELA because sourcing wants to do it. And they're like, okay, that makes sense from a data you know, management standpoint, vendor management, all data on one platform, et cetera. That makes sense. Then we went to the executives and said, hey, executives, all of the business users want to do an ELA. It makes sense so they can share data. And they're like, oh, that makes sense. We should all get in a room. Yeah, let's do it. And then I'd go to sourcing and say, executives want to do an ELA. Like we all, the executives are mandating that we do an ELA. We should all get into a room and do it. All three, business users, sourcing, executives, we all got into a room and said, how are we going to make an ELA work then? No one said, wait, who wants to do this? Because everyone was kind of pointing in this direction. And at that point forward, we had an ELA done within the next nine months. And that went from a two and a half million dollar license up to just over six million a year and a five-year deal. So it was a 30, almost basically a 30 million uh, TCV deal. Basically incepting the ideas that you want to get into people's heads through communication. Yeah. I guess for people who might be listening, who are thinking, yeah, look, Jordan, your situation sounds great. Getting lunch with every single user in the business or every single stakeholder that you want to sell to sounds great. Uh, I've cold emailed, cold called everybody in the company many times already. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. What do you think about your approach was really effective? How did you really find yourself networking across the organization so effectively? Um, well, again, it all comes down to trust with one person. If one person trusts you, they will send you to other people that they trust. And that person trusts you and that person trusts you. And soon enough, but all it takes is one person. If you have a business relationship with one person and you don't live near them and you haven't developed a good relationship, it's going to be difficult landing, expanding your network within an organization. It just, that's the fact of the matter. They have their own relationship. They actually have to trust you, like you as a person and want to spend time with you. If you don't have those three things, it's just going to be impossible to continue to expand and network within an organization. So how do you get that first initial relationship? I mean, really, if you, I mean, that shouldn't be that hard to find one person to sit down with you at a lunch or a dinner or something, you know, that's, that's not that difficult. 
Um, but you must establish a friendly relationship. And sometimes it's not talking about business on the first meeting. You're playing the long game. Sometimes it's not talking about your solution for 45 minutes on the first call. Sometimes it's talking about them. Sometimes it's talking, taking them out to a restaurant. Sometimes go golfing. But all it's all meaningful. It's There's nothing fake about it. It's just you want to have a new friend and you're building a new relationship. There's nothing fraudulent about wanting to take them out. You're, you're really just trying to develop a new relationship. I think at the end of the day, it's all about people. As we've emerged from COVID and benefits of all the remote selling and selling digitally. And now that everyone knows how to do video chat and you don't have to deal with those people who need to be. You'll get reliant. You get too reliant on this. And rather than getting in your out of your comfort zone and going to mute zone. And that, Michael, this is another big key. One thing I, I learned here that was so important um, during this process was you cannot continue to spend so much time with the people that already like you. You have to spend time with the people that are friend closer with your competition. That is how you're going to win deals. Um, and if you continue to have dinners with the people that already respect you, you're not gaining ground on the competition. You've already sold them, you know? So basically, right to your point, yeah, allowing everything to go through the people who already like you, and the people who they talk to internally know that they're biased towards you. So how do you get into those people who don't like you as much? That's right. Yeah. And and I know I know those people at American Express, and it was difficult. And that goes outside of your comfort zone. And you have to understand when you go into those meetings that they've spent three years with that vendor or four. And in this case, it was 10 years with the existing incumbent. They have 10-year relationship with these people. You have to acknowledge that fact and you can't come in pompous, arrogant, because they will kick you to the curb quicker than you could have set up the meeting. And so you have to acknowledge that they already have a deep relationship with those people and it starts building a relationship just one small step at a time. I mean, I think at the end of the day, someone is going to risk or believe that they're risking something about their career right. to buy your solution. And That's so- right. You know, and of course, it's all a political game when it comes to competition, too. And so at the end of the day, how do you break down those human barriers and walls that we all probably put up? Yeah, I mean, the learnings that I took from this deal specifically was your in-person relationship, in-person contact with these individuals is so important to winning large deals, enterprise deals. This is why enterprise motions, you have infield reps. If you have infield reps who are not getting into the offices and getting face-to-face -face with the customer as frequently as possible, then that's, you're defeating the purpose. You're just another inside sales rep. And it's going to be hard to develop and create a massive enterprise license without grinding and getting in front of the person. Now, given Jordan's vantage point in enterprise dealmaking and his experience with market cycles and sectors like crypto, I wanted to get his perspective on what he's staying grounded in right now and thinking about with his teams. I have a really good analogy that I um, like to tell people. I was at an arcade game around this time, an arcade with my, with my kids. I took them to an arcade and there's these, these machines where you put tokens in these machines and it goes up on this ridge and they, they, it goes back and forth. And if they get pushed over the edge, you get a bunch of tickets that come out of it. And it looks like there's about 400 tokens that are at any moment ready to drop. 
And that keeps people sucked in to keep putting in these tokens. And some people will just come in there and just look at this thing like it's going to drop any moment and they try to push it or something. What I've learned through this, what I learned at that exact moment is that if you're not consistently putting in tokens into this machine, nothing's going to drop. And so I try to remind my team that every single day you have to be putting in tokens, whether that's cold calling, whether that's setting up on-site meetings, whether it's setting up a dinner or at a conference and you're going around talking to every single booth, these are the tokens I'm referring to. And at some point, that stack that's layered on top of each other like shingles hanging over the edge, it's going to drop. It's just a matter of time. But if you don't put in those tokens, it's not going to push it forward. And so basically, it's just about pure win at that point, I guess. Yeah. And, I mean, and it's, I think it's hard for people, right? When there are clearly different kinds of tokens, to your point, with some that are more valuable than others. And so- yeah. And I just think like some people are like, well, where do I start? It's like, it doesn't matter. Just start somewhere, just one step at a time. Put, do something right at this moment. Just do something, and something else is going to come up. You know, whether it's finding somebody on LinkedIn, whether it's, you know, uh, writing that extra email, a follow-up email, whether it's like I've talked about, it's just, there's, there's could you just anything at any moment, do something. I have seen a lot of, a lot of just programs around outreach and email campaigns. I feel like that's the biggest craze right now is email campaigns, massive number of emails. I'm not so sure that's the way to continue to do sales. I do believe, I mean, they're effective. Don't get me wrong. I do believe though, there is something about picking up the phone and calling people. Picking up the phone and calling people is probably still something that's maybe a lost art at this point because there's so many programs are all about email campaigns and setting up your email one, email two, email three. I'm just, I think you need to do both. It's not one or the other. I just feel like picking up the phone and setting up these meetings, whether it's in person or not, that's just a, it's a lost art. And I do think that that we, in sales in general, we need to get back to that form of reaching out to people. I know we went through this COVID area the last couple of years, but we've got to get back to meeting in person. But if you want to do an enterprise wide deal, you've got to pick up the phone, large deals, it's going to take more in person work. And that's going to, it's not going to be done through outreach. It makes sense, but it's certainly a lot harder. Uh, and then I guess just to kind of close out here, you know, you mentioned a lot of people already on this call, but if you could just provide, you know, one or two leaders or peers that have had a major impact on you and, and why. Yeah, um, good question. I Obviously, I want to call out Ryan, Ryan Smith. You know, I started uh, very early on at Qualtrics and he was, that ultimate sales guru. If you ever heard him in any meetings, he's like one of the best salesperson you can ever think of. And uh, so during my time at Qualtrics, I I think back to everything that he's given me. So that's number one. Um, number two is just all of the other uh, people I work closely with. You know, I worked closely with Aaron Robinson for many years, one of my best friends. And um, he's He's one that's just thinks strategically. He's always got your back. And so I want to say, you know, he, he's another individual that has helped me in my career. Uh, Thanks, Jordan. I really appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And uh, looking forward to getting out to New York again soon. Seeing you. 
Thanks, as always, for joining us on another episode of The Windwire. We'd appreciate it if you could share it on LinkedIn, Twitter, and rate us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Helps others discover the show and join our growing community. Our contact info is in the show notes, including our show email, windwirepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to get your feedback and requests. You can see all episodes at thewindwire.com and then your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Michael Katz, and this is The Windwire.